Thank you, Don. Eddie and Alicia. And good morning again to you all. Good to see you all here today. I pray that you'll be blessed with the message this morning. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2 to 11. Let's read. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was uh, afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle on the temple of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, once again we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the power of it. And Father, this morning I pray that our hearts will be ready to receive it. Lord, I pray for the work of the Spirit in our lives, and I pray even now that you would give me the words to speak, that I might encourage and challenge my brethren here, that they might grow closer to you and they might worship you more fully in their lives. Father, we thank you once again for this time, and we ask that Jesus would be glorified in everything we do. I ask this in his name. Amen. As Eddie mentioned already, I um, had the... Uh, the privilege of spending some time with my family um, in hospital yesterday with my uh, uncle of mine just uh, sitting there in a the bed and it's probably not long for him. Um, and as difficult as that was, I had the, um, the blessing of actually catching up with two of my cousins that I hadn't seen for a, a long, long time. And one of them was named Joe, the other one's called Ivan. For those of you who don't know, I have some Croatian blood in me. So that's the fiery side, so don't get me worked up. Um, but it was nice catching up with them. And uh, Joe, in particular, we were catching up and reminiscing. We were there for, for quite a while. But we were reminiscing about old days. And, uh, and Joe was telling me about his work, his current line of work. He used to be a, uh, a policeman and became a detective. And then from detective, he's now gone and he's working for ASIC. Okay, so ASIC is a company register, registration company that, that all the, the corporations sort of have to register with. And as he's an investigator, so he, he investigates company fraud and manipulation and those sorts of things. So he works out where companies are trying to swindle and, and, uh, and do things they're not supposed to be doing. So he was telling me about one particular incident, and he's actually he's won some cases that, that they use sometimes as, as case studies 
for students at universities. Right? He was telling me that day he caught up with an old friend of his who was a lecturer at a university, and he goes, oh, you've got to come and speak at our university and tell them about this case that, you've, you know, that you, you're able to prosecute. And he goes, yeah, sure, happy to do it. So he organised a date and he, uh, he went there and, um, and, he, and he, he said to me that he has this, uh, he's got a few jokes. You know, you, you, to get the audience warmed up a little bit to you, he, he's got these jokes lined up. And so he thought he'd pull out the, you know, the regular joke that normally gets everyone sort of, you know, interested and smiling and everything. And he said that uh, one of the things that he finds, and he got up on the stage and he's got a whole audience in front of him. And he said that um, he looked out, he goes, almost every one of them was Asian, all right? So they weren't just Aussies, they were like all Asian. But he goes, okay, I'll pull out this one here and we'll see if we can get it going. So he said, as his typical style, style is, and he's very laid back, he said, um, he said, most people, when I tell them that I work for ASIC, think I work for a running shoe company. <laughs> and people, most people know what that means, right? Because ASICS is a, is a shoe company. And he goes, he goes, Frank, he goes, I've got this hall of about 300 people. Dead silence. He goes, oh, just looking at me like that. He goes, and on top of that, he goes, he had his friend behind him. And then he goes, there was like, it was like a, a morgue in there. And he, all of a sudden he is <coughs> behind him. <laughs> that didn't work. So hopefully I've got you warmed up a little bit this morning. But the purpose of the reason I've told you that is today we're going to continue uh, our look at Satan and how he attacks and how we are to respond by looking at two particular case studies this morning. Okay, So we're going to look at two particular times that Satan tried to tempt and to ensnare. The first time was when he did it with Eve and her response. And the next time we're going to look at, or the second one we're going to look at and contrast that with, is when he tried to tempt Christ and how Jesus responded. And we're going to look at those two case studies and we're going to compare what the reaction was from both of them and why. So this morning I'd like for us to actually understand better how his tactics work. And I hope I can keep your attention because it's going to be uh, as... Um, I think I will, because uh, as uh, Sherlock Holmes says, the game is afoot, and uh, there is plenty of games going on. So, I'll just recap quickly the last message, or part of the last message that I gave you, because I want you to understand the foundation for why we believe what we believe. Now, the Bible teaches us that there are three, if you're a child of God this morning, if, if you are born again, if you have the Holy Spirit residing in you, the Bible says that there are three that you need, you and I need to contend with, okay? That we need to struggle against. The first is the flesh that we live in. So the flesh is that part of us that is fallen and unredeemable. God didn't come to save this flesh. This flesh will die and is dying, and as most of you know, it will it will it will die and it will rot away. Okay? When uh, if you are raptured, if you have the, 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 the privilege of being raptured without having to die, then you will leave. Or you will be given a new body. God can't redeem the body that you have 
here. Okay, So it's the part of us that fits into this world, the part of us that is a citizen of this world that wants to stay here. And the Bible says that we are to contend with this flesh. Okay, it, it, It's this, the other part of us. So the Christian, in essence, is probably the purest form of a schizophrenic. Why do I say that? Because God plants a new nature in you as a Christian. A heavenly nature. His nature. And that nature is what, be, what is now the real us. It's the nature that God sees. The flesh is no longer us. So just turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 8, just to clarify this point. That there is the flesh and there is a spirit. And these two things are, are, are constantly at battle with each other. But our heavenly Father does, not, does no longer see us as the flesh that we live in. He sees this new identity in us. And thank the Lord for that. Because the flesh can't be saved. Romans chapter 8, verse 8 tells us, So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So there's a distinction. There are those who live... In the flesh. But the Bible says we don't live in the flesh anymore. We live in the spirit because the spirit of God resides within us. So if you are in the spirit, God, God no longer sees you as the flesh. We are separate from that now and we need to contend with it. We're like dragging this thing around with us everywhere we go. But we need to manage it. Okay? So God tells us to contend with the flesh. The second thing that we need to contend with is the world. And the world is full of people in the flesh. And they do the things of the flesh. Okay, And the world is the realm that will not subject itself, that will not submit itself to the laws of God. The world is that very thing which submits itself to the authority of the devil. Okay, So there is the flesh, there is the devil, and then, sorry, the world, and then there is the devil. And the final enemy that we must contend with is him and his kingdom. Okay? And that kingdom stands opposed to the kingdom of God. So our ultimate battle is against the devil and his kingdom, which uses the world to entice our flesh. Do you get it? They're all connected one layer after another, says the flesh. The flesh lives in the world. It wants to be part of the world. The world influences the flesh. The devil uses the world to influence the flesh. Okay? So our connection is, our weakness is the flesh. Because we're still living in the world. But the Bible tells us, even though we live in the world, we are not to be of the world. Okay? But the scriptures tell us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual, uh, spiritual wickedness in high places. So there is a spiritual kingdom that exists, which has subjected the world to itself. And the flesh and everyone living in the flesh in the world is a subject of that world and that kingdom. Okay? So there are three layers that exist that we must contend with. Okay? Then it says, the Bible teaches very clearly in John, that there are three elements within us, three points of attack, where we, we are vulnerable. 
okay, where the Christian is vulnerable. And John tells us that the things that are in the world are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those three things, okay? And those are the three things where the devil will try to infiltrate, okay? Like a walled city. Remember the, the, the cities uh, in the olden days were surrounded by a wall, right? So Jerusalem was surrounded by a wall, and they'd have to, and if a, an, an opposing army wanted to come and take that city, it wouldn't be like today, where you fly over it with planes and bombs and things like that. They would have to lay siege to the city. They'd have to find a weakness in that wall if they could. Okay? So the devil tries to find the weakness in us. He tries to find the parts of that wall that surround our lives that are weak. And they're the ones that he attacks. And the Bible says there are three weaknesses that we have that he'll always go for. The lust of the flesh, which is that flesh that I'm carrying around with me. The lust of the eyes, which feed that flesh, which give the flesh inspiration. And the pride of life, which is the pride that comes from within that flesh. Okay? So they're the three things that we are susceptible to. So we're going to start now laying that foundation. We're going to first look at... What happened with Eve? So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now it says here, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of, the, of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Alright. You'll notice something. What you're going to notice is the devil does things in patterns, okay, um, when he attacks. Uh, before we go into this in depth, I want you to understand something. The devil is, the master, is a master psychologist. Now, when I speak of psychology, I speak of the science of understanding human behavior, okay? So, if you tap a knee, you know how the knees, how the doctor does that? Okay, well, human psychology, okay, is really about understanding the reactions, the general reactions that people give with certain stimulus. Okay? The way people behave. There are patterns to them. Right? That's, why, that's why there are people that can manipulate other people because they know the way people respond to certain stimulus. So the devil is the master psychologist. He understands the human mind and he's been, do he's been learning about humans for around 6,000 years. He's very smart. He understands what makes people tick. He understands what their weaknesses are. And he understands the most efficient ways to actually infiltrate and to bind that person up. Okay? 
So he is our most dangerous enemy. And we should never take him for granted. But as the Bible says, and as I've shared with you already, the Bible teaches very clearly that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Okay, So don't ever fear him. There is only one to fear, and that's God himself. The devil is someone we must resist, and we must be wise with the way we deal with. But we aren't to fear him. We are to resist him in the faith. Okay, But understand... The devil is not stupid. He's not stupid. He's very intelligent and he understands how to take advantage of people. And he begins this by causing confusion to start off with. Okay? Have a look at how many religions there are in the world. How many opinions. How much time people go chasing rabbits and wasting their lives. How much division. How many versions of God's word there are? How many different churches there are? And he starts all this off by questioning, by asking simple questions that cause people confusion. In this case, the truth, it was the truth that God had forbidden Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was a simple command that he gave. I don't want you to eat from that particular tree because the day you eat of that particular tree you will die okay so the devil asks a simple question hath god said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden didn't god say that so he's actually stirring up confusion he's saying those two things are really contradictory aren't you didn't god say you can eat of every tree of the garden and what he was doing he was testing Eve. The devil was trying to con cause confusion within her. And where there's confusion and where there's uncertainty, he is the master of manipulating you. Okay? So if you're not sure about something, okay, if you're a little bit confused, he'll take advantage of that confusion. He'll take advantage of your hesitation by immediately planting a lie. The opposite of what you might think is the truth. Okay? So the Lord isn't the only one sowing seed in people's hearts. Remember the, the, the parable of the sower? Well, that's a parable of the Lord sowing the word of God in people's hearts. But there's another parable that speaks about a sower who, sows, who sowed uh, seed in his field and then overnight the devil came and sowed his seed in the field without people even realising it. And it was only when they started the, the seed started coming up and they realized something's wrong here. We didn't sow this particular seed. But they realized that the enemy had done this. The devil continually sows seed. Remember the principle the Bible teaches us? When we're sharing the gospel with other people, it says, you know, uh, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. All right? That's not just true for the gospel. That's true even from the other side as well. That's also true for lies. If the devil can sow enough seeds and there's enough watering that's going on, eventually those, those lies and no, those things take root in people's lives. And eventually you'll have a field full of trees that are lies. Then the problem is, how do you uproot all those trees? 
then to uproot and to get rid of that rubbish that's been sown for so long becomes a problem. Okay? So the devil is the master of sowing false, falseness and lies into people's hearts. And he does that by starting off with some confusion, looking for a vulnerability. Okay? And this is what he's trying to achieve with Eve. Now let's see if Eve had some uncertainty with the way she responded. Look at what she says in verse 2. When the woman said, and the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, was there uncertainty or confusion with Eve's response? Tell me, did she have any confusion or uncertainty? Hands up who thinks she gave a very clear and certain answer. No one? You think she was certain? And, and hands up who thinks she gave an uncertain answer. Okay. Eve gave an uncertain answer. She gave a confused answer. You might think, well, hang on a sec. That doesn't sound confused to me. I'll tell you why I think she was absolutely confused at that point. And she was uncertain at that point. The fact is that she didn't answer truthfully. God said nothing about touching the fruit. At all. She added that in. But you might say, well, that's not a big deal. Isn't that a better thing? That, that she said, don't, don't eat it and touch it? it? It'll cause them to stay away from it even more. That's not, that's not the point here. The point is that the devil's trying to see whether there's some crack in her, whether he can get through somehow. So instead of answering just plainly and truthfully, this is what God said, she said, God said, oh, God said, we, we aren't to eat of it. Oh, we can't touch it either. At that point, he knew he had her. Because people who don't know, he knew the command. See, he knew it. So he knew that she had added that bit in there. Now, why would she add something in? Why do people embellish stories? Why do people, if you... Oh yeah, people who are in the police force and things like that. Yeah. You can generally tell when someone's not sort of telling you the truth, when they're not sure about what's going on. Because I'll make things up. And you can generally find out whether they're actually telling you the truth by asking a few more questions. Well, this time, he already knew that she had added something to the scene. So he knew, hang on a sec. There's something not right here. Because, you know, all he had to do, right, at the point where she said, oh, you can't touch it lest you die, if the devil's there, he can say, really? Really, you die when you touch this thing, do you? Look at that. I'm not dying. All of a sudden, her argument then becomes very, very weak because he's exposed the untruth that she's told in there. Okay? Now, because, because when someone is uncertain, they're trying, to, they're trying to actually show that they know what they're talking about when they really don't. So people tend to overdo it. All right? They'll tend to over-tell you stuff. And this is what happened with Eve. When he asked that question, he asked it in a way to see whether she was confused at all. And in this case, Eve got one part right. 
but she added something that wasn't supposed to be there. Because if you go back to Genesis 2.16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayst freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. From the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Nothing about touching at all. God never said they were not allowed to touch the tree, lest they die. So here we have Eve adding to the word of God. Let me ask you a question. Which is, which is less evil, to take away from the word of God or to add to it? They're exactly the same. So don't think that if you add to the word of God, it somehow is good. Because one of Jesus' biggest criticisms of the Pharisees was that they kept on adding to the word of God and making the word of God of none effect. They were, making, they were adding so many things to the Word of God. So when the Word of God said, this is what you're not meant to do, they'd add this, 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 and this on top of it. And they'd say to themselves, see, we've polished up the whole thing. It's more better now. Do you know what I mean? If the Bible says, thou shalt not eat pork, fair enough. Thou shalt not eat the meat of pigs or whatever else it is. You know, they might say, all right, we're not to walk in 10 metres of any anything that's, uh, that's pork-related. We're not to uh, be anywhere that smells of pork. We're not to associate with anyone who grows pigs. Or Do you understand? So they'll, they'll add all these extra laws on thinking to themselves. They're becoming even more holy by adding to the Word of God. Instead, what they've done is they're actually making the Word of God of, of more and more none effect. So the devil has her in a susceptible position now. He knows, remember the master psychologist, and he's just he's only been around for a short while too, but he already knows he's found a weakness in her. She didn't respond properly. So let's look at the way he then goes on the attack. Verse 4, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know... That in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Whoa. She was already susceptible. Now he plants this thing, right? A direct contradiction to the word of God. First he questioned it. Next, he gives a direct con he goes for the knockout punch immediately. When the devil has a person in a state of confusion or obvious weakness, he will then directly suggest a lie. A suggestion that directly contradicts the truth. In this case, it directly contradicted what God had said. What he'll then do is offer you an alternative. Okay, an alternative. A lie with a promise at the end of it. A lie with wrapped up in something really nice. Okay? He'll contradict the word of God and he'll wrap it up in a promise. promise of a happier life. A promise of fulfillment. A promise that you can achieve what you want to achieve. A promise to be freer. Isn't that what everyone wants? To be free, to be more happy, to be more joyful, to do what you want. That's what he'll give you every time. So he promises Eve that their eyes will be open and they'll be as gods, little gods, and they'll be smarter than what they were before. So he offers them three things in one neat package. 
Now that's a pretty, they're pretty big benefits when you look at them. When we drill down to these things, he's offered them true vision. In other words, he's saying, you were blind before. I'm going to help you see things for the way they really are. I'm going to help you see things that you've never seen before. And these things are going to be unbelievable to you. I'm going to offer you a godlike status. Be your own gods. Don't have to bow the knee to anyone else. Do whatever you want. You can, you can be the rulers and masters of your own destiny. And I'm going to offer you knowledge that you've never had before. I'm going to tell, things that, I'm going to tell you things that you've never imagined in your life. I'm going to show you things that he wasn't willing to show you. I'm going to tell you the, the truth. Now, the amazing thing is that these are the three things that a person needs to be successful in life. These three things in particular. The ability to see things properly. Vision. Proper vision. Because if you can't see things the way they are, then you don't have much of a chance of actually working out what, what, where to go next and what to do next. To be able to make a proper assessment of your surroundings and your circumstances is critical to actually success. Let me ask you this question. Can you imagine if everyone could see things for the way they really are? Do you and I see things exactly the way they are in life? Or are we somehow a little bit blinded by our own motives, by our own successes, by our own history and baggage? Aren't we all a little bit like that? Imagine if everyone in the world saw things exactly the way they are, without all the baggage. Wouldn't the world be an unbelievable place? be very, very different if people saw things exactly the way they are. If they could look at themselves and say, oh, that's the way I am. Okay. But people don't. The devil is saying, I'll help you to see things for the way they really are. God's not showing you, but I'll show you. Couched in Satan's promise was a lie, though. Sure, they would see things differently, like they've never seen them before. All of a sudden, the whole world was going to be different to them. But they would only see it from the context of their fallen state. The world and themselves would no longer be pure. They'd only see the world now from the corrupted thing that they'd made it. No longer beautiful. No longer perfect. No longer innocent. They would now see the world and everything in it tainted, corrupted, impure, not innocent. So he offers them to be a God, which meant that he was offering them the ability to be masters of their own destiny, to be gods themselves. But couched in that promise was also a lie. Once they had chosen to go it alone, independent from God, they would become disconnected from him. They would die spiritually, because once they chose to rebel and to go on their own, the connection they had with God, that spiritual connection would kept them alive spiritually and physically, would be disconnected. And their freedom to choose would now become a curse to them as well. Because even though they, they thought that they were free to choose, 
the flesh that they lived in would now be the prison that they lived in as well. And the other part of that problem, when you think you're a god, is that you're going to be all alone. Do you know, ultimately, you know, I've studied, I've studied science, and I, I take an interest in what in what astronomers do, and what and what these uh, these scientists get up to with NASA and those sorts of places. Do you know why scientists continually try to find life in outer space? Why do you think that is? Do you think scientists are continually looking for life in, in, in planets outside of, the, of our solar system for no reason at all? Why would they be so interested in that sort of stuff? you know why? Because they've rejected the possibility that there is a God and that man was created in his image and for a relationship with him. They are now all alone. Alone. In a universe that is endless. So they're looking for someone. They're continually sending out messages. Saying, we're here. Is anyone there? We're here. Is anyone there? For some 50 years they've been sending messages out. And no reply. Isn't it a bit sad? The reason they're looking for, for life in other planets is because they can't fathom the idea that we are completely alone. Arthur C. Clarke, who was a novelist and, and, and a fairly intelligent sort of fellow, says this, Two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe or we are not. Both are equally terrifying. So according to, the, according to the, the, the godless generation, if there is no one in the universe, it's a terrifying thought. But if there was someone that we actually found who was much more advanced than us, it's also a terrifying thought. Because if they come here and they're more advanced, they could subjugate the world and take it for themselves. So both are equally terrifying. But the terrifying thing is to think of ourselves as totally alone in this universe. And that's thanks to the devil, and that's thanks to the fall that took place. When man disconnected himself with God, all of a sudden he looked at it and said, all right, there's no God, we're gods, but who else is there now? And finally he promises knowledge. Now the world we live in worships knowledge and information. Our culture today worships information and the gathering of information. The whole internet thing is about sharing information. Governments, big businesses, in fact all businesses, gather as much information as they can, believing that the more information they have, they're able to make better decisions and better manipulate. Our world loves information. And the devil was offering Adam and Eve knowledge that they didn't have before. And he... And he Couched in that promise was another lie. Because the knowledge that he'd give them would be tainted. The knowledge that they would get was ill-gotten. It would become corrupted by the very way they obtained it. It's a bit like breaking into someone's house and finding out their personal information. 
Yes, you've got information now. Did you do it correctly? No, you are now a criminal. Every promise the devil has or will ever make to you will look good on the outside. The devil will not present you with a promise or a lie that looks bad. Please, everything he presents you is going to look good. Otherwise, he'd be a fool and he's not. But every promise that he makes you will contain a destructive lie in the middle of it. Like a poison apple. It will look great on the outside, but when you take the bite and you ingest the poison, it will have its effect. The devil never offers something that seems ugly or bitter. He will not offer a bad experience. He doesn't offer you lies. He doesn't offer you destruction. He offers you something that will always be sweet, fun, easy, and looks good. Now let's see how the fruit that Satan was tempting Eve with worked on her flesh, her eyes, and her pride. Verse 6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So let's look at this. Remember the three things that, that, uh, that the Apostle John says? The lust, of the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Let's have a look at how this thing looked to her. The fruit appealed directly to Eve's flesh, even though she knew, it says, it was, it was good for food. It looked yummy. The flesh wanted it. Even though she knew she was not supposed to eat it, the desire to taste it, to try it, was a temptation to her flesh. It then says it was pleasing to her eyes. So it lured. So the beauty of it, it must have been a good looking fruit. It must have looked, it looked nice. Okay? She wanted to have it. And then it says that it, it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. Hey, that's a nice way to appeal to my pride. I'd love to be smarter than everyone else, wouldn't you? She fell for it and justified within herself the need to have it. Now, considering Eve did not have a fallen nature already, which we have, okay? So we've got our flesh has already fallen. Eve didn't have a fallen nature. She was in a much better position to reject the offer and resist the feelings to possess something that she was not supposed to have. Fallen man, on the other hand, has already inherited a fallen nature, a tainted view of everything and an inclination to sin. Adam and Eve did not have a desire to sin, but man today has a desire to sin. But she fell, and then so did Adam. They were lured, the devil played his game, and at the end he caught them. What he offered them, he sowed confusion, presented a lie, gave them a promise, and they fell for it. And now we, we are reaping the benefits of that decision today. Let's see how Jesus responded. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. (coughs) 
Matthew 4 verse 2 says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Notice the devil attempted to attack, first of all, Jesus at a vulnerable point. A time when he was very hungry and he would have been very weak. Unlike Eve, who would have, who was, would have been very well fed and very comfortable, Jesus would have been hungry, weak and susceptible. And notice that this temptation is directly aimed at his flesh. But it's multi-layered as well. Because he asks it with a question, if you're the son of God. Really? If you're this, which I don't know whether you are, prove it to me. Is there any doubt in you that you really are this person? Because if, you're, if you have doubt, you can actually you know, cast away that doubt by simply turning these stones to bread. Remember how we started the attack with Eve. He asks a question to test your understanding and faith and he's checking to see if there's any confusion or doubt. The devil is testing Jesus' faith in who he was, first of all. If there was any crack in the armour, then he would find it. He wanted to see if there was any doubt at all. And you know something? There wasn't. There wasn't any doubt. And you know why? Because Jesus didn't feel necessary to have to prove who he was to anyone. He didn't have to prove it to Satan. He didn't have to show him and say, Oh, let me show you who I am. Let me show you here. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to prove it to anyone else. He knew within himself who he was. The relationship he had with his father was enough. Jesus' faith did not waver. Even when he was physically weak, he simply responded by quoting the word of God without adding and without taking away. So Jesus in verse 4 says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Well, hands up who's fasted 40 days here. 30? 20? 10? Oh, no, there's no, no takers. Imagine... After 40 days, what state you'd be in. That's when Satan attacked. And he offers him food. And he couches the whole thing in a question. Now understand this about ourselves. The devil will often attack at your weakest point. He knows when you're weak. He knows when you're susceptible. He is not going to attack you when you're at your fittest and best. He is going to attack you when you're tired, when you're weak, when you've already copped it from someone else, when you're feeling threatened. He's going to get you at your most vulnerable point. Times of pressure, physical weakness, depression, aloneness and disappointment. And during those times, he'll make suggestions to you. Times of great emotion. He will use your circumstances, and those circumstances include the people around you, okay, to do his dirty work. 
He'll use the people around you to distract you. He will test your understanding to see whether you really know and, be and believe what you say you believe. Eve fell for it, but Jesus didn't. And by the way, there's a way to strengthen your faith that way. And the Bible tells us to fast. When you fast, when you're weak and when you're vulnerable, you will recognize where you're at spiritually. Because if you're weak and you haven't eaten for a while and you're not feeling the best, it's during that time when the real faith actually comes out. Remember, it's not when we're cruising down the highway of life in a nice car and everything's nice and comfortable that our faith is actually tested. It's when we fall in difficulty, when things don't go right, and when we are weak that, that the determination of your faith really comes out. Okay, So if you want to test your own faith, fast. Fast. And then during that weakness, learn to depend on God more. Because if you can depend on God and trust Him when you're physically weak and mentally exhausted, then you will do it much more easily when you're fit and when you're alert and when you're well. Okay, So the Apostle Peter tells us, we're in, you, great, you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour. See, there's a, when your faith is tested, it's a bit like, a bodybuilder. There's reasons that these guys go into the gym and spend all this time pumping weights, right? And the reason is the resistance that they give their muscles actually causes the muscle to grow. Now, is it painful? Yeah, I consider it to be painful. It's difficult for them to do that. The same thing works with faith, where you have to resist and you, you, you meet that resistance your faith will go stronger. So temptations, trials in your life, don't say no to them. Don't cry about it. Because every trial and temptation that you go through is an opportunity for your faith to grow. So trying to resist every temptation and try to resist every trial is actually a recipe for being a couch potato when it comes to being a Christian. What have we got? Second temptation. The second temptation, without necessarily reading, you can read it, you can read it yourselves, came with the same question. You'll notice that he asked the same question again. If thou be the Son of God. He didn't get through the first time. He was going to give this thing another crack because that's where he thought the vulnerability, vulnerability may have been. Okay, So he repeats the same question again. And in this challenge... The Bible says he takes Jesus, he takes him and brings him to Jerusalem and puts him on top of the temple. He takes him. So God the Father allows the devil to take Jesus and to bring him to where he wants him to go. Did he need, can I ask you a question, did he need permission for that? Yeah. He needed permission to do that. So God the Father allowed it to happen. 
So he brings to the highest point of a temple, a very high place. Now, he's standing on top of a pinnacle. This wasn't a place that was designed for men to be standing on. And he's looking down and he sees people all around on the ground. Probably looking quite small. And as he looks down, the devil suggests and says, why don't you jump? Now, if you're the son of God, you know, I'll put you up here. If you're the son of God, you can just jump right down. And you can just land on that ground and people will look at you and go, oh, how did he do that? A bit like a superhero. Right? Look what he was tempting him with. He was tempting him with wanting to prove himself. Okay? And two ways. Prove himself to people by showing them this is what I can do. So I know the angel's going to catch me before I hit that ground. Right? So he could have just jumped, made a spectacular entry to the people below, and he could have also done at the same time, he could have put the devil back in his place and said, mate, I don't care whether you've brought me up here. Let me show you what I can do. I can head straight down now and nothing's going to happen to me. He could have allowed his pride to get the better of him. He could have allowed what he saw to influence him. But he didn't. He didn't. And the devil, the devil wasn't lying either. The devil was actually telling him something true. Turn to Psalm chapter 91 with, just with me, just to, just to confirm that he was actually telling the truth here. Psalm 91 verse 9 says, Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall no evil before thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. That's a promise to the man who's actually in the will of God completely. That's a promise that the Word of God made. All right? And the devil quotes the Bible. Now, let me ask you a question. The devil quotes the Bible. He quotes it, which means he knows it. He knows it. The devil's read the Bible. And do you think the devil knows the Bible better than some Christians? I think he knows the, I think he knows the Bible better than most Christians. So the devil knows the Bible, he knows how to quote it and misquote it. And in this particular case, he's quoted the Bible properly. He hasn't misquoted it, but the way he's offered it is wrong. Okay, And you'll notice that he leaves out the next one, the next verse, which is verse 13. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon, thou shalt trample under feet. Um, that, that's a prophecy about Jesus stepping on his head. So he left that one out. But there's a problem with what, what the devil offered Jesus, the suggestion he was making, is that unless it was directed by the Father and the Holy Spirit, you see, Jesus came to, to obey. 
the Father, through the Holy Spirit. So wherever the Spirit led him, remember there was a Spirit that led him into the wilderness? Jesus obeyed. Whatever the, whatever the Holy Spirit said, go and do this, go and say that, Jesus simply obeyed every time. So this would not have been obedience. It would have been, it would have been taking advantage of the Scriptures and it would have been done in his own imagination. But Jesus passed the test once again. When he responds, it is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So the devil's failed twice. See, so he's appealed to the flesh, to the eyes, and to stir up Jesus' pride. And the final temptation comes with those three wrapped up as well. How are we going? Are we uh, well into it? Oh, nearly there. Okay. Verse 8 in Matthew chapter 4. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. So the devil takes now Jesus, once again he gets permission again to take Jesus and bring him up to the top of a mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and offers them to Jesus if he just prostrates himself before him. What an offer. All the kingdoms, all the world's glory. This one offer wrapped up the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life all in one package. This was Satan's attempt at a knockout punch to Jesus. Why, was it, why would it have been appealing? Because Jesus came to die and to suffer for the sins of men. Satan was offering him all the kingdoms of the world, the glory of the world, without suffering, without having to go to the cross, without having to go through all the suffering. And the flesh never wants to go through suffering. So the temptation was to the flesh. On top of that, he was offering him the rule of the kingdoms of the world. You know, If anyone can rule the world well, it's going to be Jesus, isn't it? And he would have known that. He would have seen all the destruction, all the mayhem, all the evil that men do to each other when they're in power. And the temptation would have been, if I was ruling, this stuff wouldn't go on. The devil knew what he was offering. The devil understood. But Jesus resisted once again. The devil understands very well the psychology of man. He knows his vulnerabilities and uses the world to infiltrate those vulnerabilities. And he tried to do this with Eve and he succeeded. And he tried to do it with Jesus and he failed. He failed three times of Jesus. So what have we learned about why Eve failed and Jesus succeeded? The success is found, first of all found in the responses that Jesus gave. You'll notice he responded simply with scripture. Okay? So when he says in verse 4, He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. When the flesh is vulnerable, rely on the word of God. When you're weak, when you're tired, the Bible tells us to commit the word of God to memory and in our hearts. Because it's during times of weakness, you can pull it out and you can use it. 
You don't have to go worrying about all the different mind games and, and, and try to create all these elaborate uh, um, arguments to try and defeat the devil. You know something? The Word of God simply puts them in His place if you use it properly. When you're tempted, the Word of God can be used as a sword. And we'll look at that in another sermon. When Jesus was tempted for the second time, to put God to the test, he resisted it. Why? Because even though there are many good things to do, do you know something? If Jesus jumped off that pinnacle and landed in front of those people, do you think they would have taken him more seriously and more would have believed in him? Isn't that the logical thing? Do you know what I mean? He does a miracle, people are going to believe in him. If he jumps off a top of a building and lands on his feet and doesn't get hurt, more people are going to believe in him, aren't they? Isn't that logical for us to think of? That would have been a logical thing to do. He would have impressed everyone. People would, more people would have flocked to him. You know, there are, there are good things to do and there are right things to do. There are, there are things that are better than, than other things. Where God wants us to do it, oftentimes the thing that God wants to do doesn't seem as if it's the most efficient way of doing it. Have you ever wondered... Have you ever thought about, you know, we have to come to church every week and God wants to pray every day and God wants to read his word every day and you might think to yourself, well, all this stuff that I've got to do, you know, it's so time consuming, it's so slow. I want some quick results. <laughs> There's a reason God does it that way. Is that faith grows slowly. And to try to do things quickly is a bit like Adam and Eve wanting to get all the knowledge of good and evil quickly. They're not ready for it. And finally, in verse 10, when Jesus says unto the devil, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. When you feel like bending the knee and giving credit to yourself, ever feel like that? Ever feel like, you know, I deserve what I've got. I've put in so much effort over here. I'm better than the other person over there. When you feel like doing that, and your wonderful achievements and my wonderful achievements, beware. When we, when we become lifted higher in our estimation, when you're bowing the knee to yourself, beware. Because ultimately you're bowing the knee to him. If the devil has you continually thinking about yourself, either in a boastful way or in the opposite way, as in, woe is me. Look at all the stuff that I go through. Look at what everyone else makes me go through. If you spend your time worrying about yourself or the opposite, the flip side of that, boasting about yourself and thinking yourself to be good, then the devil has you where he wants you. You've taken your eyes off the Lord and put it on yourself. Beware also that there come a bitterness of unforgiveness within us. Where the offences that we list against others begin to take firm hold of our lives. Beware lest that root takes hold of your life. Remember I said to you, the devil plants seeds. One of the seeds you'll plant is, this person's offended you. Make sure you write that one down. Now hold on to it. 
Because the next time that person comes to you, pull that one out. Make sure you don't forget. When those seeds take root and bitterness becomes our lives, then we destroy ourselves and everyone else around us. Beware, lest you have an unforgiving spirit. Beware, lest you have a root of bitterness in your heart today. Beware, lest the seeds of sin and lies are in your life. You will be held accountable for it. If we look carefully at the responses from Christ, you will notice some very important things. Jesus gave reverence to the Word of God. He used it properly and He showed simply that He believed in what God said and who He was. Just because you recite verses of Scripture doesn't necessarily mean that you're using them properly. Please, if you're reciting verses of Scripture and you're not using them correctly, you may be doing more harm than good. Make sure when you divide the Word of God, you divide it rightly. Because there are plenty of people who don't. So how do you overcome? Let's wrap it up. How do you overcome the temptation of the world? John says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. This, These two test cases, these two case studies that we've looked at, are simply a test of faith. He failed and Jesus passed. My question to this morning is, where is your faith? Where is your faith this morning? Is your faith strong or is it weak? The devil will continually test your faith to see whether you say what you say you believe, you really believe. And the truth of the matter is, as James says, be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So this morning, my challenge to you is beware of the, of the things that Satan does. But remember, it's our faith that overcomes the world. Examine your hearts today and commit your lives to the Lord. Make 2016 a year of growth and faith. God bless you. Thank you.